Are you struggling to lose weight and keep it off? Tired of wasting time and money on starvation diets that lead to more frustration and stress? If there was a weight loss solution that could actually work for you, would you try it? Then head to golo.com. I'm Steve. I lost 138 pounds in nine months on Golo. I'm Amber. I've lost 128 pounds with Golo. If you're ready to take back control of your life, head to golo.com now and see how Golo can work for you. That's golo.com. My sleep is way better. My inflammation has gone way down. Golo saved my life. I was way overweight. That's what sent me down the path. I wanted to make sure and live for my kid. I have literally tried everything. I was on the verge of getting gastric bypass surgery, and I saw the Golo commercial, and it was the last thing I tried because it worked. Join over 2 million people who found a better way to lose weight with Golo. Your healthier and happier life begins at Golo.com. That's G-O-L-O.com. Again, G-O-L-O.com. A little bit of a vibe, like um, I was sitting here thinking about, you know, what if Godzilla... Gamera, and then like the giant versions of American monsters around here, similar to the ones from Rampage. Hell, you can have Ultraman up in there too, you know, like get all of the giant monsters together and just duke it out. Who shall stand? Who shall wins? Well, if you throw any of the Mecha Godzillas in there, you might have a chance. Not the alien one, but I would say like the one that is uh, ran by a lot of the uh, humans. Yeah, like, you know, maybe a cure you, stuff like that. But I'm just thinking, like, that would be really, really cool to see. <laughs> of course, granted, you know, um, nowhere near living in that city right off the bat. And, you know, the insurance will cover everything. But it's like, I'm just thinking, you know what I mean? Could you imagine having to buy monster insurance, though? Mm. Anyway, enough hypotheticals. Welcome to the J-Man Show here on J360 Radio. Monster Fest. Anyway, it's still Monster Fest here at J360 Productions, and we have three short stories happening right now. And I want to thank all of you here for coming tonight here on episode 276 of the J-Man Show. Well, we're really climbing up the ladder around here, huh? Loving it, loving it. Hey, speaking of which, um, for those of you out there who are going through periods of loneliness and heartache... Um, no, I'm not going to laugh at you. That is a horrible rumor put out by people who are jealous of J-Man's way of doing things. And I'm going to say this, if there's any people that I'm going to make fun of in the world, it's not going to be lonely types. They have their own problems. And you see it all on Reddit and everything else, or any social media in general. If you see somebody that's lonely out there, tell them they're not alone. You know, like, really help them out. Because that is a mental health problem. To the T, it's a mental health problem. And, I, and I've seen quite a lot of it. And not to mention some of these movies that go down. Like, you think that um, art imitates life, you know? And everybody wants to talk about representation matters. You might see that and it might look humorous. But let me just tell you this. It's only because it didn't happen to you. Or you go, you found a relationship, you got in one, and you're all happy and stuff like that now. But the whole thing is, is that I'm speaking out about it because, like, things around here, a lot of these institutions, believe it or not... 
they bank on insecurity. They bank on people being insecure about so many things. And the truth is, is that like a lot of people, yeah, we laugh at those that have only fans. We laugh at them that have fans, Lee's and, you know, the fan houses and all that kind of stuff. And then think that the person there really, really cares and stuff. And maybe to an, a, to a, to a, mm, let's see, to an extent they do. But then you realize what's the end game of it all, you know? But then again, you know, it's, it's it's interesting. Like, I always like to look at that kind of stuff because there are some people that go above and beyond with their, um, you know, fandom. And the thing about it is when they do that stuff and it just gets to the point where it's like, yeah. It gets to the point where you don't have to necessarily watch a horror movie to be in a horror movie. You know what I'm saying? And I mean, think about it. True to form. All this stuff usually comes from some sort of aspect around here. And once again, we live in the days of irresponsibility and apathy in high doses. You know, it's just, it's just, it doesn't take much to show some care and concern. And at the same time, it's like, like I've said this before, too much altruism is a bad thing. But at the same time, not enough care is a bad thing too. And a lot of these monsters that are walking around out here, outside the ones that really just wanted to do it because they could, some of them are really sympathetic people on the inside, but does it constitute exactly what they have done to m- commit crimes or what they have done in, in order to become that monster of today? Little things like that. You probably have seen it off of certain horror movies that you watch. Like, the point about this is is that not every single monster that you interact with or know about was intended to be a monster that way. Sometimes it's usually based off of what society shapes and forms. And then, you know, or lack of initiative of. But you see, like, um, take, like, somebody who, let's say if it's somebody with, let's say, my temper, but with Marco's mischievous intent. You see what I'm saying? But none of our uh, good morals that keep us in place. Yeah, I said good morals. (laughs) No, seriously, that's, that's pretty damn scary if you think about it. And just going at people just because they could. You see what I'm saying? Like, one way or another, it doesn't take much for somebody to snap. And the thing is, this is not somebody that's checking out their responsibility for their actions. They're becoming vengeful because at the same time, it's like they found a reason to be vengeful. It's it's very interesting. Like, sometimes, you know, it's psychology and you look into it and you try to see, like, what is the why this is happening? You understand what I'm saying? And then, like, you know... What's really scary is some of the movies don't give you reasons. But hey, these are just food for thoughts right now (laughs) to get you thinking before we go ahead and climb into our three stories tonight. Now, these stories are actually from a different book, by the way. And the book is called A Trick of the Light. Short The hell wrote this? I'm just kidding. It is called A Trick of the Light. Short Horror Stories. Written by William Stewart. Yeah, this is going to be pretty interesting. All right, so here we go. Let's go ahead and dive in. And of course, you know, support the writers that made this book. All right, let's do this then. Seems like there's plenty of nightmare fuel in this, so we got something really, really good to look at. Our first story tonight is called Mr. Barney. Good morning, class, said the man in the black robe and tassel hat. Please open your guidebooks to chapter seven, metaphor and composition. I'm Mr. Barney, your professor, and that's quite enough for introductions. Please read for me, uh, you, you in the back there. 
The girl in the furthermost seat snapped her head up, fear and panic on her face. Uh, uh, I don't have a book. The professor looked angry and paced back and forth. He seemed to think for a moment before calming down. He drew himself in, took a deep breath, and quietly said, When you're in class... It is expected of you to have all of your materials. This includes all supplies such as paper, sharpened pencils, and a tenuous grasp of the prior evening's assignments. Do you understand? She nodded. Does everyone else understand? Mr. Barney regarded the class for a moment before removing his hat. I'll take your silence as agreement. Class dismissed. Mr. Barney stepped to the front of the room and sat down behind the giant desk. He shuffled a few papers before looking up irritably. None of the students had left their seats. He glanced at the apple sitting at the corner of his desk, then narrowed his eyes at the group of scholars facing him. He grabbed the apple, considered it, then took a bite. The flesh crunched under his teeth as he looked over at his papers and agenda items. Then he glanced back up to see the back of the room girl holding her hand up. Mr. Barney rolled his eyes. He didn't have time for this. Yes, you in the back, girl without her book, please. Um, sir, Mr. Barney, aren't you going to give us our lecture? Mr. Barney started, but something was off. Did, didn't he, hadn't he, what, wasn't it, wait, what day was it, what, what time? He studied the class. There was Lumpy, the big jock at the front of the room, large, stupid, idiot male, there was the one he called Dwarf because the kid was fat, moved slowly, and probably should be called something like Dwarf. Then there's Gwendolyn, a girl so fair her parents had given her a name nine letters long with a W and a Y. Tammy was just along for the ride. Barney could tell. It was going to be like pulling teeth to get much out of this recalitrant blonde. Joyce was the one sitting next to Gwendolyn, and other than her long hair and her long teeth, Barney had nothing to hate about her yet. And then there was the new one, No Book Girl. This one seemed to speak with her breasts, insulting as that was. Nothing serious or even noticeable, just the way she sat at her desk, blue shirt plunging low. It, it wasn't as if, no, it wasn't as if. She was just here to learn. Mr. Barney shamed himself for not paying attention to her name, but he'd changed the seating chart because, since class began earlier that day because he didn't know the polite way to figure it out. He realized the class was staring at him. Awkwardly, he stood up, took his pointer, and proceeded to the lecture. <clears throat> so where did we leave off? That's right, Metaphor and Composition, Chapter 12. It is a known commodity in the matters of civil discourse and practical avionics that words such as how and shan't are merely constructs of a pillory ancestor for whom no sympathy or memory is deserved, nor granted, but only used to illustrate the coming storm. He looked at the class. Anyone care to take a crack at that? They all stared silently, stupidly back at him. He shook his head and turned a few pages. He adjusted his glasses and continued. Moving on. When it is augmented by the drowning of rats and unending reams of dot matrix printer paper, the mes new messiahs burst from the cocoons and reap the porcelain mandates. Anyone? Room was quiet. Anger building, he stared at his class of simpletons. None of them moved. He removed his glasses and rubbed the bridge of his nose. Anyone at all? You! In the back! The girl gawked for a second before answering. Uh, uh, I don't have a book. 
Mr. Barney paced back and forth. He seemed to think for a moment before calming down. He drew himself in, took a deep breath, and said quietly, Then why are you in this class? It's expected of you to have all of your materials. That includes all supplies such as paper, sharpened pencils, and a tenuous grasp of the prior evening's assignments. Do you understand? She nodded. Does everyone understand, Mr. Barney, regarding the class for a moment before removing his hat? I'll take your silence as agreement. Class dismiss. The girl in the blue sweater raised her hand. Um, sir, Mr. Barney, aren't you going to give us our lecture? Sandra Sullivan watched as the psychopath who called himself Mr. Barney stammered and struggled to understand what just happened. He paused for a moment, looked back over his shoulder, started quit and then put his glasses back on and began flipping through his ridiculous book before reading again. Good. Hopefully it will be a long lecture this time around. She needed this. Time was running out. Sandra didn't know how or why she was here. She'd obviously been kidnapped, but she could not recall how or when. She surmised that she had been drugged, but could not remember the circumstances under which that had happened. The last thing she remembered, she texted her boyfriend Sean a kiss goodnight emoji. Then she woken up here, changed at his desk among the other students. From what she can tell, this was or had been a real classroom. There was a dry erase board at the front, marks on the ceilings, and walls that indicated equipment such as pull-down screens and projectors had once mounted there. The desks were old and too small for the adults that occupied them now, and Sandra had never attended a school where the students were chained to the desk and the desks were bolted to the floor. When she awakened, the six others were staring back at her fearfully. They had all been here for at least a few days, hair greasy and body slick with sweat. What's going on? She'd wept. The blonde one, the one who Mr. Barney called Tammy, said nothing. Just held her trembling finger to her lips with eyes that pleaded for silence. Sandra gripped the corners of her desk and took a deep breath while trying to stave off panic. Whatever she was in for, the fear on the woman's face told her it was worse than she could imagine. None of the others made a sound. They just slowly turned in their seats to face the front. Sandra waited. Tammy trembled. Eventually, Mr. Barney made his appearance. He was a thin man who wore a black graduation gown and a hat. And Sandra stared, trying to imagine where she might have seen him before, but she was drawing a blank. She did not know this guy. Good morning, class, said Mr. Barney cheerfully. I hope you all had a nutritious breakfast, because, mm, excuse me, what's that smell? Mr. Barney sniffed the air and scowled. I smell something foul, something that certainly does not belong in my classroom. Was it you? He asked, pointing his stick at one of the others. The student shook her head desperately. Mr. Barney sniffed and paced, tapping on each desk before settling on one. Dorf! Did we have an accident? Through gritted teeth, the man replied, It wasn't an accident, you piece of shit. You kept us locked in here for three days. I had no choice! Mr. Barney looked stricken, then replied, So I have. But it's no excuse for such language in my classroom. Profanity is for the vulgar, and you are not here to learn how to be vulgar. He moved away from Dorf and walked to his desk, opened a drawer and retrieved a small, snub-nosed revolver. Dorf began to squirm in his seat, his range of motion restricted by the restraints that held him there. Mr. Barney opened up the cylinder on the gun and let six shells fall out. Then he placed one back in, closed the cylinder, and spun it. An acceptable synonym exists for every vulgar word, boy. You are going to give some examples starting now. 
Dorf squirmed and began hyperventilating as Mr. Barney leveled the gun at his head. We're waiting, said Barney calmly, although his patience in his voice was wavering. Uh, uh, excrement, said Dorf. Mr. Barney lowered the pistol and stared at Dorf, who exhaled a sigh of relief. Sandra looked at Tammy in horror. Tammy merely trembled, her large eyes searching for a savior that was not coming. Barney spun the cylinder and pointed the gun again. Another! Wait, I... Sandra felt more than heard the report as the back of Dorf's head disintegrated and splashed all over the people sitting behind him. The woman screamed as the corpse spasmed and bled and finally slumped into the desk, held mostly upright by the tight restraints. Everyone forgot to be quiet as they pulled their chains. Mr. Barney waited for a moment before placing the other five bullets back into the gun and returning the gun to his desk. He then tapped his pointer on the desk, indicating it was time to be quiet and listened. Wait, I is not a suitable synonym, I'm afraid. Although, now that I've thought about it, I don't see why it can't be. I'll have to write that down. Anyway, I apologize for how rude Dorf turned out to be, and I am also sorry that he wait eyed all over himself and in his desk. And now, class, you have to suffer a little more because of it. And he shrugged, class dismissed. With that, he walked out of the room. Sandra was too stunned to speak. He, she glanced over at Tammy, who was almost beyond panic. What the hell is going on here? She had just seen a man shoot another man in the head and walk away like it was nothing. Why were they all tied up in here? Who is Mr. Barney, and how is she ever going to get out of there? She got her chance about six hours later when Mr. Barney played roulette with the one he called Joyce. Mr. Barney had been reading out of his strange book again. Random assortments of unrelated words fell out of his mouth. Eventually, he stopped and asked Joyce what the relative tenor mask of the unconfirmed autopsy reports had to do with the executive plastics. I don't know, Joyce had said. Mr. Barney spun the cylinder on his pistol and asked her again. Joyce had squeezed her eyes shut and tried for a random answer. Uh, jellyfish? Click! In a panic, Joyce began shouting words, and with each one, Mr. Barney pulled the trigger. Real estate, click! Mothballs, click! To her horror, Sandra realized that he was not spinning the cylinder between attempts. He was moving closer to blam! Joyce's head snapped back, and then she, too, slumped into her desk. It was moments later, after Mr. Barney had dismissed the class and walked out, that Sandra noticed the barrette. It sat teetering on the edge of her desk, covered in blood. When she was sure that Mr. Barney wasn't looking, she snatched it, bent it open, and began trying to work the locks on her cuffs. She had no idea if she could pick it, but it was better than nothing. An hour or so after killing Joyce, Mr. Barney returned. He set a fresh apple on his desk and whistled as he turned the pages in his book. Sandra slipped the barrette under her leg as the unhinged professor spoke. The others in the class glanced at one another furtively, all of them within a couple of feet of a dead body. Tammy glanced back over her shoulder, her sad, lost eyes locked on Sandra for just a second before she snapped back to face the front. Mr. Barney, for his part, faced away from the class and delivered a long and passionate lecture, which, although it made no sense, gave Sandra enough time to collect her thoughts. She thought of handcuffs and how the lock might be engaged if they were traditional. The key and lock were simple, and she would have to shape the barrette to engage the release. She watched as Barney spoke, and then she moved the metal from her chair to her mouth. She tried not to think of the taste of Joyce's blood while she had used her fingers and her teeth to try to break it. Once that was done, she would need time to bend it different ways and try them in the lock. So far, Barney had made no signs of stopping. 
And that was how you calculate bird weight and asymmetrical price reductions. Thank you for listening. Class dismiss. And like that, he was gone again. The strange routine continued hour after hour throughout the day and into the evening. Lumpy was next, shot in the head like the others. Sandra had no idea if any of these were people's real names, but she watched them all die the same as Sandra chewed at her barrette, trying to form a pen on the side of it somehow. She'd cut her lip on the end of a piece, but by now her teeth were stinging from the contact with the metal. Still, she worked hard to make a tool she could use to pick the lock. Then Mr. Barney called on her to answer a question, when all the blood drained from her face. Miss, I'm sorry. You seem to have forgotten your name. Will you please recite? Sandra stammered as she shuffled. Mr. Barney stared at her, an expected look on his face, strangely almost kind, she thought, almost fatherly. This was not the look of a man who had killed four people in cold blood over the past few hours, and then she knew that she was completely and truly doomed. She closed her eyes and took a shot in the dark. Uh, I don't have a book, she said. Tammy and Gwendolyn both stifled a panicked breath and waited for the inevitable, but rather than reach for his punishing pistol... Mr. Barney simply shook his head and said, Why are you in this class? It is expected of you to have all of your materials. This includes all supplies such as papers, sharpened pencil, and a tenuous grasp of the prior evening's assignments. Do you understand? She nodded. Does everyone else understand it? I'll take your silence as agreement. Class dismissed. And with that, he walked out of the room. Tammy and Gwendolyn turned in their seats astonished. Had the new girl cracked the code on the psycho? Had she noticed something that the others haven't? Neither of them said anything, but their eyes told her that, regardless of the reason, they were thankful to be alive. If only for until the next outburst, Sandra couldn't answer. She was just astonished as they were. Gwendolyn was almost next. Mr. Barney's confusion didn't last long, and he was back at his desk within the hour reading from his book. He asked a straightforward question for a change, and Gwendolyn answered it correctly. What is the capital of Northern Dakota? Bismarck, she screamed. Tisk tisk, he said as he reached into the door to retrieve his gun. I'm sorry, but the answer is Bismarck. That's what I said, she cried. Is it? Mr. Barney paused. Hmm, so it is. He put the revolver back into the drawer. Oh, well, class dismissed. Wow, this dude has a one-track record, man. Sandra worked at the lock with her makeshift picks. It had been hours since Mr. Barney had killed anyone, and so far the girls had managed to keep him confused, causing him to restart his lectures or leave the classroom. As the mishap and Barrett tried to find purchase within the cuffs, Sandra was thinking of ways to keep him befuddled until they could make their escape. She was thirsty and so, so tired, but she dared not sleep. So instead, she inserted, wiggled, turned, inserted, wiggled, turned, until something managed to snap. And she finally released the catch on one of the cuffs, just enough to slide her left hand out. But it wasn't enough. She was only halfway there. She began working on the right cuff. Good morning, class. Please open your guidebooks to Chapter 7, Metaphor and Composition. I'm Mr. Barney, your professor, and that's quite enough for introductions. Please read for me, you, you in the back there. Sandra snapped her head up, fear and panic on her face. Uh, uh, I don't have a book. The professor looked angry and paced back and forth. 
He seemed to think for a moment before calming down. He drew himself in, took a deep breath, and said quietly, "When are you in? When you are in class, it is expected to, of you to have all of your materials. That includes all supplies such as paper, sharpened pencils, and a tenuous grasp of the prior evening's assignments. Do you understand?" She nodded. Does everyone else understand? Class dismissed. Um, sir, Mr. Barney, aren't you going to give us our lecture? Sandra was sure she almost had it. She hooked the pen to something a few times, but it had slipped. She was also a lot more careful because of the result keeping Mr. Barney confused had made it so that he left the room less often so she had less time to work with at her cuff. By the time she engaged the lock and the cuff slipped off from her hand, Mr. Barney stood over the twitching corpse of Tammy. Aw, she didn't make it. Sandra sat as Gwendolyn sobbed quietly a few feet away. Tammy had stuttered. Mr. Barney seemed to dislike stuttering. Now Mr. Barney spun the cylinder and walked back to his seat. General corporate punishment was alcoholically banned in the 17th Triumvirate Drive of Misanthropic Committee. I disagree with that discovery, so I brought it back. Don't you agree, Mrs. G? Gwendolyn stared at the floor and nodded while giant sobs racked her. Good, good. Be good little girls and boys. Class dismissed. Mr. Barney set the gun into a drawer and then picked up his apple and walked out the room. Moments later, Sandra slowly crept from her chair to the desk and found the weapon along with a stack of ideas. Gwendolyn sat wide-eyed staring at her, silently pleading for help, but Sandra knew what she was about. She checked the pistol and made sure that she counted correctly. Barney had killed five people, so there was only one bullet left in the gun. Sandra slowly searched the drawer for more, but there were none. She stared at the door. Should she shoot him when he walked in? She was not used to guns, and her hands were trembling, and her senses dulled after how long in the do- uh, how long in the desk. Now, if she missed, no telling what he might have hidden under his robe. Yeah, that's true. She moved back to the back of the room. Here she could get at him in close range, and then run down the hall to try to find another weapon if necessary. She crouched and she waited. Did she realize that? He could be gone for minutes or hours, and there was no way to know which. She thought about it and remembered that when one of the others made noise from crying or talking, that always triggered an entrance. Hey, Gwen, what did you get on number 10? She called in a hoarse whisper. Gwendolyn just stared at her, lost inside herself, and then the sudden hope of being free was almost too much to bear. Seriously, said Sandra, it's not cheating if you let me look once. Footsteps down the hall. It had worked. She kept her back to the wall and waited. When Mr. Barney entered, he paused for a moment, seeing Gwendolyn and other students. But having a moment of confusion, realizing that one of his students was abs... And then Sandra watched the twitching form of the man who had called himself Mr. Barney. She checked his pockets and found keys to the cuffs, which she unlocked Gwendolyn. She also found a handful of bullets in one pocket, which she had transferred into the pistol. Other than that... She found nothing. Gwendolyn and she stretched sore muscles and moved through empty hallways onto the light, finding the first person they could that could help them. It was a strange investigation after that. Mr. Barney's real name was Devin Wilson, an otherwise uninteresting fellow with no criminal record. He left no notes, no social media posting, or anything incriminating about himself anywhere. The only thing authorities could tie to anything resembling a motive is the rough draft of a short story that Wilson had posted on Reddit, in which he described kidnapping a bunch of people, locking them in an abandoned school, and then killing them one by one. Woo! Oh, oh, that's crazy, though. You know what I'm saying? Damn! 
Man, you know what I'm saying? So like, like, remember when I said earlier about art imitates life? Yeah, there it is right there. Some people, like, don't know the difference between what's real and fantasy, so they go ahead and they try to make the fantasy real, and by making the fantasy real, they get closer to achieving certain goals. But, you know, there was a movie where, like, this guy actually held up a school, and he just started shooting different people that he knew in his graduation class because he was ignored most of his life. And it was, and he managed to lure like leaders from the class away into like a ditch party, you know what I'm saying? So that he could go ahead and let them know they were the only ones that were nice to him, treated him like he was somebody, but he was gonna be somebody anyway because he was holding the cards of life and death in his hands. So, just like uh, what Sandra had to do to survive, Mr. Barney here, she had to think on her toes, and not only that. But she had to make sure, like, she knew of ways to trick this bastard in order to make sure that he goes down. I mean, fighting somebody strength for strength is always cool to see, but sometimes you gotta be a lot more smarter than the one that really holds the cards to things. You know what I'm saying? And then, not to mention, like, that is a creepy damn story. Now, the next story we'll be reading about is called Children's Hospital. Okay, well, you guys ready to dive again? Alright, let's do this. The next story we're going to hear is called Children's Hospital. Last Saturday evening, my eight-year-old daughter, Lizzie, began to complain of stomach pain. We offered her some Pepto and sent her off to bed, and the rest of the evening was pretty normal. The next day, she was still hurting, and after a while, my wife Michelle and I sat down to talk about it. You think we should get her over to urgent care, I asked? I don't know, she said. If it's just gas or indigestion, I'd hate to go sit there all day when I could just take her to the pediatrician in the morning. Just then, the kid let out a moan and started crying. I agree with you, I said, but if it's something serious like appendicitis, I think we need to get it looked at before I'm out of town for a week. I was flying out the next morning to a work conference, and the idea that my little girl might have something dangerously wrong with her while I was a thousand miles away attending a corporate pep rally was terrifying. We discussed it a little further, and in the end, we decided that it was better to be safe than sorry. A few minutes later, my wife and daughter pulled out of the driveway, and I went back to packing my things for the conference. Michelle and I kept in touch via text. There was a rather long wait, then they had been moved up on the list because my daughter's pain had been getting worse. They were testing, they were medicating, they were testing some more, and at 9 o'clock they pulled back into the driveway. Both of them the same kind of tired you can only achieve from sitting in the ER for six hours. We put our girl to bed, and I went to the 24-hour pharmacy to pick up her prescriptions. By the time I got home, she had started screaming again. We called Michelle's mom to come look over our younger child and went back to the ER. They looked, they tested, they placed an IV, they medicated, and everything calmed down. A little after dawn, we thought we were about to be sent home again when a doctor came in and told us that Lizzie was admitted for at least two, maybe three days. She had a viral infection that was causing inflammation and pain, and because she couldn't eat or drink, they needed to keep her plugged in for fluids and medicines. I called my boss and told him I would not be attending this year's conference, and then my wife and I set into the strange rhythm that comes from living in the hospital for several days. For our part, once her pain medicine kicked in, Lizzie seemed to take it all in stride. She got unrestricted screen time, got to bench her favorite movies and shows. She ate Jello, Sherbet, and Italian Ices. And except for the IV tube sticking out of her hand, she more or less acted like she was on vacation. 
Michelle and I, on the other hand, stared at our phones, replied to texts from worried friends and family members. Everyone offered to bring us meals, which was nice, but they didn't realize that running out to pick up lunch was a bit of a break, an escape from the monotony of the hospital. We paced, we worried, we drank burnt day-old coffee from styrofoam cups, and every now and again we'd catch one another's eye and wonder silently or even aloud, how did we get here? We stared at our phones some more. We offered to stay at the hospital so that the other one could go home and get some sleep. Time passed slowly. We scrolled and stared. A hospital at night, so often the setting for a horror story. The thing is, I've been in them a lot, and they aren't really scary at all. At their worst, they're just boring. Giant monotonies of round and routine. The beeping of the machine, the slamming of the weighted doors down the halls, the visits from the dietitians, the chaplains, the housekeeping, and all the while the patients are behind those doors suffering from whatever ailments that are not announced. Far from scary, more of just a bustle full of never-ending busyness. At the, as the weeks passed, Lizzie's condition improved and by Wednesday evening her pain had diminished and she had been able to keep little bits of soft food and medicine down without pain. The nurse unhooked her from her IV bag and told us we were welcome to the playroom at the end of the hall if she was feeling up to it. She wasn't, really, and chose to stay in the room watching TV, but asked if she was feeling okay in the morning that I'd take her down there. The night passed easily, and I even got a few hours of sleep for the first time in days. On Thursday morning, the doctor made his rounds and told us that all of Lizzie's numbers had leveled out, that they had taken her off the pain meds, and that she has not been cramping. If she made it through breakfast with no problems, then he would have us home by dinner. This was wonderful news. The nurse came and removed her IV and placed a large band-aid over the puncture. Lizzie was happy to be getting out of there, and all we could do was wait a few more hours, and we could all go home and sleep in our own beds. Michelle took the list of recommended soft foods and made a grocery run, while Lizzie and I waited for them to get the discharge papers ready. Daddy, can I can we see a playroom before we leave? she asked. That sounds like an excellent idea, I said. So we went down to the hall to find this fabled playroom. Now if I had known that this thing had existed earlier, I think we would have been in there an entire time. It was a huge room with every activity a child could dream of. There was an air hockey table, foosball, a miniature basketball tossed, and every video game imaginable on every console ever made. There were art supplies and coloring books and an entire shelving unit stocked full of brand new board games, puzzles, Lego sets, science experiments, models, you name it. Everything was new and still in the wrapper and an immaculate offering to the children who had to stay there. In the center of the room was a large activity table and there were couches and comfortable chairs placed throughout. It was like walking into a toy store wherever you were encouraged to play with everything. Lizzie went straight to the art supplies while I pressed start on old school Ninja Gaiden. <laughs> yeah, that, that would sound like if I was a dad. <laughs> I ran and jumped and threw stars, and it was all coming back to me, but it wasn't. Not at all. I'd lost three lives before I made it through a quarter of the first level. I set the controller down and looked around for the next thing to do, and Lizzie asked me to play area hockey with her. You ever played before? I asked. Not for real. There was one at a birthday party I went to once, but it was broken. I turned on the machine and the puck began to hover. This one works just fine, I said before, knocking it straight into her goal with a loud crack. One to nothing! Hey, she exclaimed, no fair. Hockey is a brutal sport, I teased as, I, as she set up her shot. 
Fine, she said. She hit the puck in my direction, and I stopped it easily and tapped it back and forth a couple of times for knocking it straight at her again. Two zip, I smiled. We playing a five or what? Ten, she cried as she launched it my way. I'll admit, I was a bit overconfident, and I didn't even try too hard to defend, but the sound of the puck dropping into my goal was a surprise. One, two, she sneered, leaning over her paddle like a seasoned pro. We went back and forth that way for a while. I scored a couple of points, and then she would come back at me and tie it up. Dad, don't let me win, she said once after four uncontested goals. I told her the truth. She was experiencing the best round of beginner's luck ever, combined with the fact that I just never was all that good at air hockey to begin with. I don't know if she believed me, but we were having a blast. We were tied at nine points each when my phone buzzed. When I looked down to check the message, there was a loud crack as Lizzie slammed the game-winning goal. And I looked up and exclaimed, Hey, hockey's a brutal sport, Dad, she crooned. And I laughed as she did the chicken dance in celebration. Oh, well, I said when I held up my paddle, Do you want to play? There was a girl about Lizzie's age hanging out watching us. From a little distance away, she smiled broadly at my invitation. And then her face fell. She held up her hand, which was taped and wrapped for an IV, and I nodded in understanding. And then I reached over to turn the machine off. Lizzie was still gloating, and the girl and I both turned to watch her dance. Don't mind her, I said to the newcomer. I'll get her in the rematch. My phone buzzed, and I looked down to check it. It said, where are you? Who are you talking to, Lizzie asked. Your mom, I said. She's back. Lizzie looked at me strangely before tearing into a box of markers. Tell her to come straight here. I don't want to go back to my other room. I told Michelle where we were, and while Lizzie was working on drawing fairies, I sunk into one of the couches and checked my email. After unsubscribing to the latest batch of advertising, I looked up to see our quiet little guest. She stood over by the foosball table watching Lizzie fold glue and... uh, Who wrote this? Just kidding. Fold and glue construction paper. She had almost shoulder-length hair that I wanted to say was blonde, but seemed almost white in the fluorescent light. Her skin was shallow, and her large gray eyes had dark rings around them. Her hospital gown was covered in an oversized flannel shirt that seemed to swallow her up. And all, she looked quite frail, and it pained me to wonder what caused her to be here. And heartbreaking, this must be for her own parents. I wondered briefly where her parents might be, then decided not to worry about it. This place was about as safe and secure as they came, and she looked like she had been here a while. Certainly her parents let her come down and play some video games by herself sometime. I realized I had tears welling up. This child was sick. Not sick like Lizzie had been. Or she'd been down for a few days and was now kicking my tail at games she never played before. No, I could tell by looking at this one she'd been here for a very long time. And worse, she probably was never going to leave. A tear rolled down my cheek when she looked at me and smiled shyly. Not wanting to alarm her, I smiled back and waved. Would you like to play, I asked. Lizzie's got more colors than she can count. You're welcome to join us if you like. The girl looked simultaneously flattered and terrified. She glanced from me to Lizzie and back, as if she had never been invited to play with anyone before. My phone buzzed and I began typing an update to my boss. Who do you keep talking to? Lizzie asked again. I looked up and the girl was gone, and I stood up and scanned the room, but she was nowhere to be seen. Huh? Well, there was a kid in here with us. Seemed kind of shy and lonely, so I invited her to play with us. There's nobody here, Dad, Lizzie said, now looking up from a project. Well, maybe not now, but there was. Whatever. Whatever you, I said. Be nice. Yes, sir, she said, still not looking up from her work. I forgot about the girl completely a few minutes later when Michelle arrived with lunch. 
Lizzie was still on restricted diet, but nothing was keeping me from tearing through a few tacos. Michelle was equally impressed with the playroom, and I sat back laughing as Lizzie showed her around all the games and activity. She eventually settled on Super Mario 3 while Lizzie and I shot, shot at her with Nerf blasters. A little while later, the doctor met us at the room, and we filled out the discharge paperwork. After four terrible days and one pretty good one, we were on our way home. And that's it. That's the story. Lizzie and her sister are fine, and we're all back at work and school, and everything is back to normal. Except, well, you see, I think that little girl came home with us. I think Lizzie was right. I think Lizzie was right. At least, and that she hadn't seen the kid that I had been talking to. But I see her all the time now, mostly in passing. But she's there. I see her sulking behind me in the mirror when I'm brushing my teeth. I see her reflection in the windows when the light is just right. She had never been as solid and as real as she was in the hospital that day. But I can sort of tell that she's around. And now, I know what you're thinking. I write scary stories and post them on the internet, of course. I'd have a few story ideas after spending a week in a children's hospital. And you're right, I do. But this is not one of them. And however much I, much I write about ghosts and monsters, I'm really not sure about how much I actually believe in them, if I believe in them at all. But there was certainly a sick little girl in the room with us that day that my daughter couldn't see. And there is definitely something that keeps catching my eye when I'm not fully paying attention. And I like to think I would be fine after that, just a little ghost finding a family to make whatever little afterlife that she has more bearable. It's sweet, and when I think of her sad smile, that grateful look on her face when I asked her to join us, I think maybe what's the harm? How lonely it must be to haunt the halls of a place like that. I really didn't mind it at all until last night. See, Lizzie talks in her sleep sometime. She has since she was a toddler. I'd be right back here writing or working on something else, and I hear her start to stare, but most of the time it's unintelligible. She'll mumble a few times for rolling over and going quiet again. Sometimes she's having a conversation with her friends. She likes to talk about birthday parties and treehouses, and every now and then she has bad dreams, and we have to wake her up to make them stop. Last night I heard her talking, so I went to her room to see what was going on. She was mumbling at first, then the words became clear. No, uh uh-uh, no, he's my daddy. Mine and my sister's not yours. No, you can't have him. He lives here with us. No, well, I don't like you either, so he's nice to everyone. That doesn't mean I don't care. You need to go back to where you came from. My mommy won't let you stay. I don't care. I'm telling. And after this tirade, she rolled over and stopped talking. I went and pulled the blanket over and just stared at my daughter with a mix of confusion and fear coming over me. I instinctively knew... Who she was talking to and the conversation was creeping me out. Somehow I knew the little girl from the hospital was in the room with us and that she and Lizzie were having an argument over me. I hovered a moment longer before leaning down and kissing Lizzie on the forehead. But when I turned around I saw the other girl in the mirror sitting in Lizzie's reading chair. A dejected and almost cruel look on her face. She locked eyes with me and smiled before vanishing. I just stood there in the dark frightened and dazed when Lizzie said... Please don't kill him. I love him and we need him. Then quiet, then so quietly I could barely make out the words. But it sounded like, well, at least don't make it hurt. Whoo, take a moment to chill because damn, that was a shiver right there. Not bad. Children's hospital, huh? Well, you know, here's the thing. Some of these places actually do have spirits moving about. And sometimes the best thing you can do is at least be nice to the spirit. Because if not, that spirit will whoop your ass. I mean, could you imagine me as a ghost? 
and knowing how I would be if I never had any rest. And then again, I'd probably be haunting my girl. But the thing about it is, though, I know exactly about all the other things I'd be doing. Ooh, yes. See, I'm not bound by the laws of man at that point. So I get to go ahead and do some very unearthly crazy things. <laughs> Ooh, you bet your afterlife. But you know what? While I'm busy having too much fun with how I can go ahead and um, make my life as a specter enjoyable, let's go on ahead and see what your last story of the evening will be. And not to mention, these are pretty good stories, you know? And of course, I will put the link to the book in the description box below. So, you know, go ahead and show that support. Really take a look. It's similar to how we do jams. Oh, by the way, speaking of jams, Jams 55 is on Friday. And, you know, the deadline is Thursday at 5 p.m. Eastern. Okay, so adjust for time. Work that out in your galaxy. Submit your two tracks. Let's be about this thing, even though it's looking friggin' good right now. And then not to mention, Jams TV 4 is happening on Friday of next week. So, either way, you got back-to-back -back jams happening. <laughs> Aren't you lucky? Anyway, let's go ahead and dive into our last story of the evening. And it is called... It's been a long day at work and you're exhausted. You take a long look into the fridge and the pantry before deciding to order takeout online. After changing clothes, you scan channels for anything good on television. And after a little while, the doorbell rings. You answer the door, but rather than the delivery driver, there's a young boy about seven years old. He looks as if he's been playing army. He has on a green t-shirt, green camouflage pants, and black boots. He wears a small green backpack and has an orange pistol and a plastic holster on his hip. He looks sullen and you suspect he's about to confess to some mischief, such as a broken window or trampled flowers. Instead of speaking, he pulls up an envelope from his pocket and hands it to you. He takes a step backward and stares at the ground, obviously waiting for you to open up and read the letter. You unfold the single page and begin to read, Dear Sir or Madam, You hereby drafted into military service per statute 8. Clause 2.1 of the Revised Constitution, Undisclosed Statutes, which states, For the protection and general welfare of the state and its citizens, any and all persons of gender, ethnicity, are subject to impressment with or without any notice for tenure and purposes specified as needed by military command. Welcome, Cadet. You are part of an organization that of vital importance to national security. Our operatives are the finest in the world, and you share the honor of being part of that proud tradition. In training our elite operatives, we sometimes discover psychological markers that may cause hesitation to act under certain circumstances. The purpose of this exercise is to discover the source of these markers and overcome them. We accomplish this by creating the profile of a person who triggers these response. We then conscript an individual who closely matches the profile. Our operative is then required to confront his or her fault in a live-action scenario. Cadet, you are the subject of who mostly matches the profile. As you read this message, our operative is standing by waiting to carry out orders. These orders include, but are not limited to, your incapacitation, torture, and execution. We must inform you that it is of utmost importance that our operative successfully completes his mission, or else another individual will have to be matched to the profile and pressed into service. Therefore, a precaution has been taken to ensure that this exercise is a success and that risk to our training is minimal. Any weapons you may own have been rendered inoperable or removed from your residence prior to you receiving this communication. 
Please do not attempt to escape. We have security personnel charged with securing a perimeter to keep this exercise contained. Any breach of the perimeter will result in your being terminated and our organization being forced to match another individual to the profile. Despite being disarmed, you are welcome to fight. Please beg, cry, and or attempt to bargain with your assailant. Be creative. Anything you can do to trigger the marked behavior is both encouraged and infinitely helpful. With your help, we can solve this perplexing problem and make the world a safer place for all. Thank you for your service to your country in this, our time of greatest need. Sincerely, Military Command Rapid Impressment Center, 1330-42669. Incredulous, you read the letter over a second time, and as you come to the end, you look up and notice the boy staring back at you. The orange pistol is now in his hands, and you realize it is not a toy. His face is still sullen, and his eyes are haunted. They said... When you finish the letter, I'm supposed to zap you till you fall down. Then I use my knife. A lot. You stumble backwards and the boy raises his weapon, walking forward and pushing the door closed behind him. I'm sorry, ma'am. That's why I'm here. They say I'm supposed to not be sorry, but they always know when I am if to say that I'm not. They say I have to keep training until I'm not really sorry. He pulls out a lever and tiny metal barbs fly out attached to your shirt. He pauses for a moment as if thinking something else to say. Then he finally squeezes the trigger. I'm sorry about your baby too. Damn! Ho ho ho, wow! You know what? If we ever gotten those times and stuff like that, dare I say it, but... Woo, I mean... That is crazy, though. Like, you know, you just get home. I mean, hey, the government's always watching you, so I wouldn't be surprised if they had to resort to some things like that. But that's pretty messed up. I mean, we must really be in some hard times if they start to use child soldiers like that. But then again, you never know. Just because at the same time your freedom is being told to you by them doesn't mean that you're necessarily free. That's something for you. Whereas they probably are doing some crazy crap like this and pick whomever they could. Oh my god, that is so crazy. Because it's true to form. Ah, damn! <laughs> so watch what you get in the mail because it might be attached to the little child soldiers out there. Damn! Oh my god. <laughs> and then, you know, it makes matters even crazier because there's nothing you can do. Because if you take him out, they're going to ship another one over to you. And then they're going to ship another one if you take that one out. Oh, my God. And no signs of tiring it out either. That is really messed up. Well, you know, usually I try to throw in a light story so that we could offset this so that you guys can have good dreams tonight. But... Man, we are out of time in the show, so I guess we're just going to have to end it there. But don't you worry, though. We'll have more J360 Monster Fest content coming up for you all. And uh, to make you feel better, like I said, Jams is coming. So, um, whew, uh, have a good night, y'all. Uh, this is J-Man signing off. Peace. <laughs>